Mr. Weston asks us from time to time to cover basic subjects, and there are things that we, uh, perhaps some of the younger people have not heard, or maybe the older ones have forgotten. We need to be able to give an answer for our faith and our practice in God's church. Turn, if you would, please, to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 to 27. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 27. You know, um, many years ago, there was an apostasy in God's church, and one of the astonishing things would happen. We would see people who would be challenged with matters of doctrine, and they just could not give an answer. We actually had people standing in the pulpit challenging our faith, people who had strayed from God's truth. And I recall that Mr. Armstrong used to say, and he would sometimes shake his head and say, sometimes I think most of you people just aren't getting this, as he looked out over the congregations. And you know why? They weren't getting it. Many times they just weren't understanding what he was saying and what they were being taught. And he was right. Maybe they just had a superficial understanding. They just kind of heard it and kind of accepted it, but never really studied it and got into the scriptures to try to understand it. Their roots of understanding were shallow. You remember the parable of the sower, and there were things that were sowed um, on the stony ground, and they came up quickly, but then they didn't have any root, and when the they were quickly um, uh, withered when the sun came down, beat down on them. Verse 25 of Hebrews 12. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth. But now he is promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Can you be shaken? You think? I sure hope not. But you know, knowledge of God's word and having the ability to give an answer can keep you firmly anchored. So I'm going to begin by giving you what I'll call a challenge scripture, one that I heard back in those days, and the argument that goes with it to see if you can answer. Now, I think many of you probably can because there's an article on this in Living Church News, July-August 2016. You can go look that up for more detail on it. But some of this material was also derived from a Bible study that I did for the singles and young adults um, in uh, May 7, I guess, 2021. So some of you may remember a few things that I'm going to say today. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. I'm going to read from the King James Version. We'll also read the scripture from the New King James shortly as well. We're going to come back to it a few times during this. 
And he came near and stood under the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire and in the, unto the mist of heaven, and with darkness and clouds and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the voice of the words, but you saw no similitude, only you heard a voice. Here's verse 13 now. And he declared unto you the covenant which he commanded you to perform, even ten commandments. And he wrote them upon two tables of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might do them in the land whither you go to possess. Now here's the challenge and here's the argument. This verse equates the Ten Commandments with the Old Covenant. It says, he declared unto you the covenant which he commanded you to perform, even Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are the covenant that he made with them by this argument. Therefore, because the Old Covenant ended with Christ's death, then our obligation to keep the commandments that constitute the Old Covenant has ended also. We can keep them as a gracious privilege, perhaps, but because we're under grace and not under the Old Covenant, God doesn't really require you to keep them, does he? Or doesn't he? So they incorrectly say that if we want to keep the Old Commandments, then we're Old Covenant Christians. Have you heard that one before? Old Covenant Christians. Particularly so if you want to keep all ten of the Ten Commandments. The reason that Deuteronomy 4.13 shows us that the Ten Commandments are no longer required to be kept because the Old Covenant they constituted has ended. So our requirement to keep them has ended also. And this is an important bit of theology for many mainstream Christians. Particularly it's used to try to avoid keeping the fourth commandment. Well, how would you deal with that? Can you answer that bit of reasoning about God's commandments? The entire argument is wrong. And today we'll see why and maybe give you a hint or two as to how to deal with it. So point number one, first we'll go through a basic principle, a basic principle. I'm going to call this principle the disappearing house. We'll start with the story. All right, now there's a fellow, he owns a house, and he decides that he's going to move out, but he's going to rent this house as an investment to someone. So he advertises it, and he has someone that comes up and wants to rent it, so he's had a lease drawn up, and he gives him the lease. And the lease basically says that if you pay this amount of rent and take good care of the house, then you may have quiet enjoyment of this house for a period of one year. Kind of a normal lease. So they sign the lease. A lease is often called a covenant in law, and especially in Canada. They refer to signing the covenants. These are the agreements that you make. So they signed a lease covenant, and away it went. After a few months, the guy stops paying rent, and he's tearing the place up. So the owner comes over, and he says to him, your lease is in default. I'm canceling the lease under its terms. And he's evicted, and he has to move out. And the house disappears. 
No, wait, wait a minute. I got that wrong. The house didn't disappear. The house didn't disappear when the lease ended. They made a covenant, a lease agreement about the house. The house was there before the agreement. The house was there during the agreement. The house was there after the agreement. They signed a covenant, a contract agreement about the house. So keep that basic principle in mind as we go forward with this. A basic principle about contracts. You make a contract about something, about a piece of property, and the contract is in existence until it ends, but the property is there before, during, and after. You make a, an agreement about the property. Also, contracts have to have consideration. Here's some basic information about contracts, and you may want to remember this when you make one because you'll see some language in just about any contract that you have involving consideration. Consideration. Take a basic course in contract law, and one of the first things they will teach you is consideration. Each party must have something as a result of the contract. There's a quid pro quo with this for that in it. And you may, you may see the language in consideration for value received and given and then the terms of the contract. Have you ever seen the word? You will usually find the word consideration somewhere in a contract. If you do this, then I will do that. If and then is a condition in the contract. Turn to Exodus chapter 19 verses 5 through 8. Exodus chapter 19 verses 5 through 8. Here's a big if and a big then in an agreement that Israel made with the God of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had said he would make this agreement with them in a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders and the people, and he laid before them all the words which the Lord the, Lord, the Eternal had commanded them. Then all the people answered and said, All that the Lord has said we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So the Lord gave them conditions, and they agreed to do the things, if and then. Israel consented to their part of the agreement, and a valid deal was done. A person cannot make a contract with you unless you consent to it. That's why both people signed the thing. That goes on all the time over at uh, the headquarters building. Boy, we see a lot of contracts come out of our legal department that have to be looked at. But those contracts have to be signed and consented to by both parties. If only one party signs them, it's not valid. Not a valid contract. You can't sign a contract and make somebody else do something unless they consent to it. However, divine law, like the Ten Commandments, does not need our consent to be valid, does it? You can't say to God, hey, I didn't consent 
to this thing about adultery. No way. Uh, let's, we're going to have all the rest, and I'm, I'm not going to consent to that one. And won't have that one be a sin. That was kind of tough. We, we're not interested in that one. Or the one about keeping the Sabbath holy. No, no, we won't consent to that one. Uh, but so we'll invalidate that one. That's what the, even some of them think today. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 3 through uh, 13 and 15 and 22 and 23. Just some examples. Just, just not that one scripture I said. There's a whole bunch of them. You see this many, many times repeated over and over in the Pentateuch. Verse 13 of Deuteronomy 11. It's just an example. And it shall be today that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain and your, for your land in due season, the early rain, the latter rain, and you, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your oil. And I will send grass in your fields for your livestock that you may eat and be filled. Look a little farther down, verse 22. For if you carefully keep all these commandments which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourself. If and then regarding the commandments, if you keep my commandments, then I will do something. Deuteronomy 7, verse 11 through 13. Deuteronomy 7, verses 11, 13. Once again, here's an if and then, but here he includes the organization of the law that he gave them. Therefore, here's the condition, you shall keep the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments, which I command you today to observe them. Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep them, and do, uh, to do them, and the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy he swore to your fathers. Talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The many other scriptures that state or imply the conditional nature of the covenant that Israel would benefit if uh, from if they complied with its terms. And this shows that the commandments on which the covenants was based were not the covenant itself. Israel made a covenant about the commandments. Simple, simple thing. The other scriptures state plainly, many other scriptures state that plainly. But I want, uh, just look at this one. This one kind of sums it up and states what I'm talking about plainly. Exodus 24, verse 8. Exodus 24, verse 8, reading in the King James Version. This kind of sums it up and states, and you may even want to cross-reference this one scripture in your Bible over with Deuteronomy 4.13. One scripture here, just this one, refutes it. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you concerning all these words about all these words. They made a covenant 
concerning or about the Ten Commandments that he had given them. The commandments arise from the character of God and are as eternal as God. The covenant was something they made at Sinai about the commandments. Basic things, basic things. But sometimes I've been surprised. Sometimes people just don't get this. They just don't quite understand this very basic thing. So I'm going to repeat it again. The covenant made at Mount Sinai, referred to as the Old Covenant, was a traditional agreement about the Ten Commandments. It was not the commandments themselves, just like a lease covenant is made about a residential property. A lease covenant is not the property itself. And Israel's national covenant with God was not the commandments themselves. And just as a house exists before, during, and after you make a covenant or a lease about it, the Ten Commandments existed before the Old Covenant. They existed during the Old Covenant, and they exist after the Old Covenant. And they will exist in the kingdom of God in the New Covenant that he makes then. We know the commandments existed before the Old Covenant because the Bible explicitly states that Abraham kept them. They're all mentioned before Mount Sinai. All Ten Commandments are mentioned in the New Testament, and they will be kept by the church in the last days of this age. You, for instance, just in this example, I'll read um, um, Genesis 26, 3 through 5. Before the Old Covenant, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and commandments, my laws and statutes and laws, that's before. And then now, in Revelation 14.12, here's the patience of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then Isaiah 2, 3, and 4, I'm just reading some examples to you. In the millennium, God's law will not only exist, but out of Zion, the law will go forth throughout the whole world. God's government will grow and spread throughout the whole world. Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. I would hate to be the guy who walks up to Jesus Christ when the law is going forth from Zion, and then try to tell him that it was done away with 2,000 years before. That would not be a good thing to do. Summarize point number one, Israel made a conditional covenant about the commandments. Divine law does not need our consent to be valid. The Ten Commandments were valid before the Old Covenant and during the Old Covenant and after the Old Covenant. And the Ten Commandments are as unchangeable as the character of the Lord our God from whom they arise. Point number two. So why is there a scripture that seems to equate the Ten Commandments with the Old Covenant? Well, let's take a a critical look at the erroneous assertion about Deuteronomy 4.13. Please turn to Deuteronomy 4.13, turn back there. I mentioned we'd be going back and forth there some. And I'll read to you from the King James Version and then the New King James Version. They're slightly different in the way they're worded. And he declared to you the covenant, comma, which he commanded you to perform, comma, 
even, that's an italicized word in the King James Version, even Ten Commandments, and he wrote them upon two tables of stone. In my Bible, if you have, and probably in yours too, if you have a King James Version or another that says even there, the word is italicized, and the italicized words mean they are inserted by the translator. There's no word even in the original text. Deuteronomy 4.13. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, comma, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. They reason in error that if the Old Covenant and the commandments were the same thing, and if later the Old Covenant ended, then our obligation to keep the commandments ended with the Old Covenant. However, the inserted comma and the italicized word even in the King James Version is inserted by the translators. It is not in the original Hebrew text. Neither one is there. If you read the verse without the translator's inserted word and punctuation, then the meaning is clear and the meaning changes. Commas can change a lot in a sentence. What God declared Israel was to do in his covenant was to perform the Ten Commandments. And this admonition is repeated in many other scriptures, which a few of which we just uh, read. The gratuitous insertion of the word even and comma changes, as I said, the meaning of the text. So Deuteronomy 4.13, without the translator's inserted punctuation and word, let's read it here. You can read that in yours, too. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Simple now is consistent with everything else we just have previously read about the commandments and the covenant. Here's the point. You cannot do away with the Ten Commandments with a comma. That's silly. But that's what they try to do. That's what they try to do. You should also note that the word which which appears in Deuteronomy 14 as his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, the Ten Commandments, is translated from the Hebrew word asher. It's A-S-H-E-R, that's Strong's 834, 834. The same Hebrew word is often translated in which in the New King James Version and is translated that way multiple times in Deuteronomy. I'll give you an example here in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 1. Just an example of, of that. You shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which, Asher, the Lord your God has blessed you. Same word. It just makes sense that way in both places. Deuteronomy 17, 7. According to the sentence of the law, in which... Asher, they instruct you. You're inserted, instructed in the law, in which he has instructed you. Others, Deuteronomy 12, 7, 17, 11, there are many different places where this occurs. And not only in Deuteronomy, in the rest of the Pentateuch as well. So this makes a lot more sense and is more consistent with the rest of the Bible. 
The Sinaitic Covenant was an agreement that God made with Israel. However, the Ten Commandments are as eternal as the character of God and were not initiated at Mount Sinai. But the National Covenant with Israel began there. Summarize point two. So if you're confronted with the incorrect reading of Deuteronomy 4.13, you can answer, you can't do away with the Ten Commandments with a comma and show them what it says without the comma. The covenant was about the Ten Commandments. As such, the commandments were not the covenant itself. Deuteronomy 4.13 does not equate the Old Covenant with the Ten Commandments, although some translators prefer that interpretation, and maybe one reason, of course, is the Fourth Commandment about the Sabbath. In God's church, we understand that God gave us the Ten Commandments. They are eternal, and they are not the nine suggestions. So, point number three. Let's do one more basic point about the commandments. It's important to understand the biblical presentation of God's organization of his law. And I've seen people kind of mix this up, uh, people who are in mainstream Christianity who kind of ignore this and do their own organization of God's, reorganization of God's law in order to prove erroneous, their erroneous theological ideas. Please try to remember, and, you know, I grew up in a fine old Southern Baptist church, and I've got a, um, wonderful people there. I still love to see them. Um, it's a fine old church there in my hometown. But I kind of understand how they think about things, too. And it's good for you to remember that when people in mainstream Christianity, particularly evangelical Christianity, hear the word law, what they think is law of Moses. You say law, they hear law of Moses. And they don't really know what that means. They're not even sure because they've never studied it. They think it's kind of done away with. So remember, just keep that in mind when you, um, when you say that. The law of Moses, well, there's sacrifices and there are oblations and oblations, there are civil laws and there are commandments and statutes and all kinds of things mixed up in the law of Moses. When we say we keep God's law, um, of course, they hear us say we're keeping the law of Moses, and we refer to it as God's spiritual law. That's what we're thinking when we say that. His definition of right and wrong that he reveals in his word. Mr. Armstrong used to, what did he talk about all the time in a period trying to get people to understand this idea of the two trees. The two trees, remember that? We don't talk about it much these days, but it seemed like for a while. What was that period of years that he always started out with the two trees? He would turn to the two trees and, oh, Mr. Armstrong's back in the woods again. He's going to tell us about the two trees. But sometimes he would look out and say, you just aren't getting this. And they weren't. They weren't. The tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil is God's definition of right and wrong, and we do not take that to ourselves. He reveals it. He tells us what it is. It's his government, and we're subject to it. We love it, and we want it. In God's church, we don't ask, well, 
how much of God's law do you think you have to keep? We ask, how much of God's law can I keep? It's a blessing. It's a good thing. It's his character. I want to be changed so that his will about right and wrong is my will about right and wrong. That's conversion. And we're going to be doing this forever, forever, administering this spiritual law of justice and rightness, righteousness, the quality of being right. That's what he teaches us by his spiritual law, divine law. And you understand this, but brethren, just remember, many people out there, no idea, and they don't really want to know. The Apostle Paul says, because their deeds are evil, they would rather do something else. So let's review the organization of the law that God reveals in his word. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 1. Numerous scriptures do this. We won't go through them all. The biblical organization of the law is commandments, statutes, and judgments. You see this in uh, many places. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments, statutes, and judgments, which I command you today to observe them. You can see that also in Deuteronomy 5.31, Deuteronomy 7.1, Deuteronomy 8.11, and not just in Deuteronomy, uh, you can go to 1 Kings 8:58, find the same things um, in many numerous other scriptures. Sometimes it will mention just commandments and statutes, just depending on what the context is he's saying. But when he's talking about the whole thing, he says commandments, statutes, and judgments. Turn to Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. Here are the two great commandments, the two great commandments, both of which are listed in the law of Moses, by the way. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Okay. Well, how is this so? How do all the law and the prophets hang on the two great commandments? How do they descend from it? That's the picture he's giving us. Some say that Jesus was doing away with the law by saying this, but no, just read the statement. This affirms, powerfully affirms the law when he says it. Well, the first four commandments, I think everybody knows this, even even our friends in mainstream Christianity know that the first four commandments elaborate on the first and great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all, all of your being. So the first four commandments Tell us how to do that. The next six commandments are about our relationship with other people. The first four, relationship with God. The second six, next six, our relationship with, um, descend from and elaborate on the second great commandments, to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
And the statutes are really interesting. Uh, they magnify the commandments by elaborating on them for specific situations. For instance, the statutes about having just weights and measures, a just effa and a just hen. Well, if you don't own an effa and a hen, that doesn't matter. You still have to be honest with other people in your dealings. If you have an unjust weight or an unjust measure, then which commandment are you violating? You're stealing. Thou shalt not steal. Your weight is too small so that when, um, you know, maybe instead of a one-pound weight, it's 14 ounces. Well, the guy, he doesn't know. So you weigh it out, and they're getting less than they thought they were getting. You just stole two ounces from that person. But this has many meanings for us as well. Do you give eight hours work for eight hours pay? Oh, okay, I've gone from preaching to meddling. I'll leave that one alone right now. But you can see the statutes, we look into the statutes to find the character of God and the commandment of God that they descend from, that they elaborate on. And then we try to find ways to apply it in our lives. You know why? Because we love God and want to keep his commandments. We want to be like him, like he defines right and wrong. It's interesting, the statutes are quoted many times apart from the Gospels. The Apostle Paul refers to them and sometimes completely quotes them like, um, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treads down the grain. He mentions that one in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 9 through 11. Uh, we won't turn to it, but he says, is this about oxen? No, it's about us, he says. He's teaching us something about us and also how to apply the statutes in our lives. And so these things are important to us. The judgments uh, implemented various aspects of the statutes on the local level in Israel. Paul frequently referred to the statutes, referenced them, or even quoted them, but he does not reference the judgments themselves. Those are the, um, uh, in his, particularly in his letters to the Gentiles, those were civil laws for the nation of Israel. Turn to Jeremiah 7, verses 22 and 23. Jeremiah 7, verses 22 and 23. What about the sacrificial laws? I, that's a silly argument. You ever heard the pick and choose argument? It says, well, if you're going to keep, think you have to keep the law, then you have to keep the sacrifices too. You can't pick and choose. You ever heard that one? It's wrong. Read the scripture. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in um, all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. He said, I didn't speak to them about sacrifices when they came out. That was done later. And Paul explains this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Two scriptures, good to cross-reference in your Bible if you do that. Galatians 3, 19. Here Paul applies what Jeremiah said regarding the law. What purpose then does the law serve? And the law he is talking about here is the law of sacrifices. Sometimes when 
Paul talks about law. He's talking about the spiritual law is when the law is holy and just and good. But in this case, he is talking about the law of sacrifices. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Added to what? Because of transgressions of what? Because of transgressions of the law that is holy and just and good. God's divine spiritual law. The one that we keep. The one that we remember the two trees about. The one that we understand and accept and love and desire greatly to internalize. And the one that the world rejects. Summarize point number three. The basic biblical organization of the law is two great commandments, the Ten Commandments, the statutes, and the judgments. And the sacrificial law was added later because of transgressions. So to conclude, no one in God's church should be fooled by bogus reasoning about Deuteronomy 4.13, doing away with the Ten Commandments. And that argument is in conflict with the rest of the Bible. Transgression of any of the Ten Commandments is a sin, whether before, during, or after the Old Covenant. And that includes profaning his holy time on the seventh day. I hope you'll remember these basic things about the Ten Commandments and their relationship with the Old Covenant.